Welcome to episode eight of the Partners Desk Podcast. Um, this week we step out of our comfort zone even more. I only say that because, like our last guest, Mike Kelly, our guest today also has a background in broadcasting, podcasting, writing, and public speaking. Even though Mike Kelly said I sucked, I'm determined to get today's guest seal of approval. Please welcome Craig Can to the Partners Desk. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing just great. Thank you very much, Reed, for having me. And uh, Mike Kelly's a friend. And if I can be on any podcast that Mike Kelly's been on, then I'm I'm happy to to do whatever I need to do to help you. So M I Z and and glad to be here. <laughs> Z O U, I really appreciate uh, you spending some time. Uh, we were talking before the show. This week's been a little hectic for you, um, mm -hmm. between your normal schedule and then also being on the Sirius XM Channel 92. PGA yeah. Tour Radio, what was on, uh, well, today is Thursday, um, down there in Orlando. Tell me about that. What's, what's, uh, what's new, what's fascinating down to the PGA show? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting because um, the PGA show is, is the biggest trade show in golf. It happens once a year. Um, COVID has obviously really hurt things um, from that standpoint of people traveling. Last year was was not uh, to be, and this year um, we're, we're doing something completely different. But the number of people that were there uh, was actually, I would say, probably half of what it normally is. And that, that says a lot about business owners and traveling and whether they think it's worth it economically. Golf has benefited greatly from COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Rounds are up. People were outside playing. They, they didn't have a lot of other things that they could do. So they were excited about that. And um, I was I was thrilled to be on the air uh, watching people walk by. I mean, it's kind of good to just have a gathering again. Um, I think the professional game is in a great place. There are a lot of superstar players, uh, John Rahm, to, um, you know, Dustin Johnson and uh, Justin Thomas and on down the line. Great, great players that are competing. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau comes to mind as well. So I think the game of golf is in a, in a great, great place with a lot of talent, young talent, Colin Morikawa and, and others in the women's game with Nelly Korda, Jin Young Ko. Uh, I just, I think the business aspect of the game is going to take a little while. I'm not talking about rounds played, but just the business of the game. So that's what's been going on. My schedule, yeah, it's been crazy. I was in San Francisco working with a client out there for a few days. And I've got upcoming trips to Myrtle Beach and uh, Nebraska and Ohio and uh, various uh, places to, to work with corporate executives on public speaking and presentation skills and learning their company story. So a lot going on, but but I like it. It's better than the alternative, right? So Correct. Um, so you mentioned the business of golf has a ways to go or is still evolving. Um, I was reading through the vendor list at the PGA show, and I noticed a couple of things. Um, I've always been into golf simulators, uh, golf okay. technology in general, um, but it seems like the newest evolution of the technology is these... Uh, these putting uh, mechanisms, so X putt, putt view, we well putt. Um, I mean, we're starting to get really down in the weeds. Do you think we're heading down a path of too much data? Are we gonna maybe not for the pros, but for an amateur golfer like myself? Am I just gonna get overwhelmed mm -hmm. when I'm standing over the ball? So that's a that's a good question. Um, during the last week, I was the MC for the Golf Business Conference, 
which is in Orlando in the three days leading up to the PGA show. And uh, so you've got all these golf course owners and operators that are there and they're trying to figure out how to grow the game and how to get more people to their golf course, to their facility. And um, one of the things that was talked about was um, labor, number one, Mm -hmm. and number two, technology was a real big topic of conversation. And uh, data is, is really big. You're trying to figure out your customer. You're trying to learn their wants, their needs, their tendencies. I think te- technology is, is the way of the future. It's uncomfortable for some people, myself <laughs> probably included, probably not as much for you. I think uh, what people are going to try to do is one-up each other with the best app or the best um, available you know, uh, thing to help somebody's game. And I think that's a good thing. I, I think everybody's looking for something special uh, to try to do that. So um, I don't think we're going to get to a point of too much is too much. I think we're probably at a point of uh, people trying to, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable with all of the different things that are out there right now. So if you want to get better on putting and there's 12 apps to choose from, that's fine. Uh, pick the one that suits you. Have you been uh, privy to any of these simulators, TrackMan, GC2, and Quad, and, and SkyTrack? Have, do you use those regularly at all? Uh, I, I don't, but I will tell you that I, I spent some time on SiriusXM with a, with a few former tour players. Um, Robert Gomez, former PGA Tour mm-hmm. winner, Carl Paulson, they, they host shows with me on SiriusXM, and and we were talking about that and, and that those things in the late 90s and early 2000s were not you know, commonplace on a practice range uh, for the pros to go out there and, and get ready for the tournament that week. So everything is changing. And, you know, I had a guest on the other night on my on my own show and they were talking about how um, players might actually end up having driving coaches. And I'm not talking about driving a golf cart or driving a car. But somebody specifically, you know, people have people that work with their player on putting. Well, now somebody's going to work with them on driving, distance, accuracy, all those things. I mean, golf has become a very specialized game, and um, I think that's where we're going. So uh, to kind of echo on the development of the PGA and trying to become more modern, really. I mean, um, long, obviously, you're gone to the days of, you know, capri pants almost, right? And uh, long socks. But, you know, we have this player impact program now. Um, I I think it's very interesting. I mean, you see Phil Mickelson claiming that he won to help boost mentions, Max Homa roasting amateur swings, and it even seems like a lot of uh, professional golfers are even getting on more podcasts. Um, And to quote your book, uh, by the way, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, Do you think this is a chance to, uh, to be deemed interesting, become newsworthy, to do good and become a role model? I mean, what what is the best part or give me some uh, advantages to this player impact program? Well, number one, I, I think um, every organization is trying to figure out ways to build awareness, to get more people to pay attention to them. Uh, the player impact program, uh, the problem that I have with it is that we're not being given all the background and all the information and Supposedly, we're not even going to know all the winners. And we do know that there's prize money for, you know, those who kind of were at the top of the list. 
a um, lot, right? I mean, eight million. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, if you're gonna give away, you know, a, a pot of money over over a million bucks, you know, multiple millions of dollars, um, then I think, and you're gonna promote it, and you're gonna tell people that it's happening. You need to give people the details. You need to tell people who the winners are, what they did. I want more. I mean, you talk about data. If Phil Mickelson did win, I want to know why. I want to know how that. It, that he was able to capture people's attention. What was the top tweet that he had? What was this? What were the strategies he used? Or maybe some trends that we could learn from. I think that that's fair game. And um, you know, to me, uh, the PGA Tour, if they're gonna if they're gonna put a program out there like that, then I think they owe it to everybody else to to be transparent and full disclosure of what's going on. I mean, so, look, they have tournaments and they give away $1.6 million to the winner, $1.3 million to the winner, whatever that amount is. We all know. We know who won. We watched it. So if you're going to give other money, why is it going to be a secret? I just don't think that makes sense. So that's another question to me is, I, I mean, I'm an avid golf fan. Uh, I golf weekly, if not three or four times a week when it's warm enough. Um, I watch all the majors. But what do you think is the solution to drawing somebody like me who to watch more of these non-major tournaments? I think that may be, is that where they're trying to head with this PIP is, is trying to get weekly numbers up or just, just to draw some no, buzz? I think, they're trying to get, I think they're trying to get players to increase their brand and create mm. more awareness on their own, get them to step out of their, their, comfort zone their box and uh and put themselves out there you know uh there isn't a professional sports league out there that doesn't promote its stars if you look at the nba it's it's lebron it's steph curry um, if you look at the nfl pick your favorite quarterback it's tom brady it's uh, aaron Rodgers. it's you know patrick mahomes i mean you know go, go down the list of all professional sports and and that's how it works so in golf you're going to want to do the same thing you know you want to see what brooks kepka brings to the table when it comes to social media you want to see Maybe it is Phil. Maybe it's Tiger. Heck, maybe it's Charlie Woods, for God's sake. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. Charlie wouldn't qualify for the money. But um, <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think it's all about brand building. And I know when I was at the LPGA as a chief communications officer for five years, that's all we focused on. Um, we didn't focus on just building the overall uh, brand image of the organization we built brands of players. We wanted the players to be more well-recognized. And if Michelle Wee was walking down the streets in New York or at the time, Natalie Gulbis or Stacey Lewis or, you know, Inby Park, um, you know, all, the, all those players need to be seen and heard from, but they have to know their story. So mm -hmm. to me, that's what the PIP is all about. Let's, let's get players to promote their brands. Let's get people to understand um, who they are Kind of, kind of get a little feel for their personalities and all that sort of stuff. I think that's the goal. So do you think there's a uh, more direct effort like the NBA has to reach outside of the U.S.? So it seems like the NBA is trying to maybe not tailor their content or their stars' brands to mm -hmm. uh, larger countries like in Asia. Um, I know mm -hmm. that they've started playing some more high-profile pro tournaments in Asia. Um, is that a direction you see the PGA going? Um, is, I mean, in Korea, golf is one of their biggest sports, um, along with baseball, right? Absolutely. No, I mean, so first of all, I'm going to back you up and actually tell you that to me, golf was the first sport to truly go global 
and taking its product around the world. And the LPGA was at the forefront of that. Uh, the LPGA, when I was there, was playing in 15 different countries each year. Um, I've been to tournaments in Malaysia. I've been to Thailand. I've been to Korea. Um, I've been to Taiwan, many countries, Canada, obviously, as well. And I think it's important to recognize that. And at the time, there were players from 31 countries on the tour itself. That's a lot of countries, you know, um, from New Zealand to Asia to, you know, I mean, you just pick it. So the PGA Tour is doing the same thing. I mean, the HSBC event, uh, there's other ones. And, and I think that, that golf is already a global sport. Deki Matsuyama won the Masters this past year. I don't know that you could come up with, uh, you know, too many players that have done things in the game of golf that were that impactful to their country or, or the growth of the game itself. If you look at the Olympics over the last two rounds of Olympics, each time the podium has been filled by three different countries. That's pretty cool, whether it be the men or the women, three different countries represented. And um, I was very fortunate in 2016 to be on the communications committee for the Rio Olympic Games to help bring golf back to the Olympics. And then I hosted the press conferences down in Rio. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was there and it was... It was in B Park, it was um, Lydia Ko, and it was Shen Shen Feng. So you had New Zealand, you had China, and you had in B Park from Korea. That's that's pretty cool. Matt Kuchar won a bronze medal that year. And uh, so I, I think um, I think a lot of the countries are, are being represented well. And that's the most important thing um, that I think you know, you're, you're bringing up here that needs to be emphasized you know, whether it's Justin Rose winning a gold or Xander Shoffley winning a gold, um, that the game is in really good hands from a global aspect, in my opinion. Is that part of the pitch when trying to bring golf into the Olympics in 2016 is how global it is? Or Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the opening ceremonies, not now I just told you how many countries were represented on the LPGA factor in the men's tour and they're all walking in there to be a part of that opening ceremony that's pretty cool and it, it speaks volumes about uh, the growth of the sport globally and i think golf is a is a really good sport to, to be in the olympics for that very reason so why do you think that golf has been able to grow as much as it has i mean you said you think it's one of the first real global sports and a lot of sports that go global uh, are low cost like soccer um you know you can get into golf for a little bit but it's still going to be more than just buying a soccer ball um what do you think are, are there yeah. programs are there do people just find deals how did golf explode into this global sport well we could go back to tiger woods on the men's tour and, and golf in general, we could go back to um, Sari Pak on the women's tour uh, when she won in Wisconsin. And that kind of created a, a flood of, of international Asian born stars or kids that wanted to become stars to play the women's game. Tiger changed the landscape of golf for forever um, by not just becoming the number one brand in golf, but becoming arguably the biggest brand in sports period, you know, um, the 97 masters win. I was there, interviewed him in the locker room. We'll never forget that. And, um, that's a, that's a watershed moment. That's a big, big moment in sports to have, you know, a, a 
21 year old kid dominating like that in in um, in arguably the biggest most well recognized major championship in in the game so i think uh i think golf has been global for quite some time we could go back in history and you can come up with other people players etc from various countries that have been ambassadors for the game gary player um south africa arnold palmer is an american jack nicholas obviously as well but we could we could go on down the line and come up with a, a lot of great uh players that that represent other countries i think that's really important and look when you watch baseball you understand that the Dominican Republic is very well represented. Cuba is now very well represented. Um, the Americans, obviously, um, but multiple countries and heritages. And I think that's important in sports. I think we need our sports to be uh, reflective of society. And I, I think that's the direction that we're moving. And as you said earlier, everybody has their own brand. Everybody needs to tell their own story. That's what you were trying to do at the LPGA. Um, mm -hmm. But so speaking of stories, in your book, mm -hmm. can you get our attention? Um, mm -hmm. You talk about flying down to Georgia with Arnold Palmer. Yep. Um, flying back after, after um, visiting his course. Um, yep. And then he said, no, you're not going home. We're grabbing a beer. Um, tell, tell us about That's that true. beer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, and good job using the book as a prop. Okay. Right. I got my copy right here oh. for you. And I'm glad. And, and okay. I hope you're enjoying it. But um, the deal of it is that, uh, and you can get that book on my website, canadvisory.com, or you can go to Amazon and pick it up there as well. You Link in the on my description. Website, you, you get an autographed copy and I handle the shipping for you. But here, yeah. here's the deal. Um, it was uh, right after the games in 1996 and Arnold Palmer was opening a course in Conyers, Georgia. And given his tie to the golf channel, obviously we went there to cover the grand opening of the golf course. So myself and a cameraman by the name of Val Pollock, we were asked if we wanted to fly on the plane with Mr. Palmer and, uh, and head from Orlando to uh, Conyers. And his late wife, Winnie Palmer was there as well. And uh, then, Mr. Palmer was in the cockpit along with another uh, pilot. So we flew up there. He played the 18 holes of golf, uh, opened the course. You know, we interviewed the dignitaries. We shot video during the afternoon, interviewed Mr. Palmer. Then we stayed to do a couple of other things while he went back to get the plane ready. And when we got to the runway, um, you know, a small airport, he was standing at the top of the stairs onto his private plane saying, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, like yelling at us to, to come on. Um, so we get on the plane and he full throttles it back and, you know, we jet off and get back to Orlando and, um, you know, it was a pinch yourself moment. I mean, you know, you're flying in a plane with the King, you get back, you pull into his hangar in Orlando and he's, he's got the, the private hangar with the, uh, it was almost like a marble floor. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it was marble, but it had his logo on it, you know, the umbrella iconic logo mm -hmm. and he pulls it in and, uh, we're all getting off the plane. And I said, uh, Mr. Palmer, thank you very much. You know, it was a, an amazing opportunity today. Really appreciate it. He goes, where are you going? I said, uh, well, sir, I'm, I'm headed home. And he said, the hell you are. And I was like, okay, uh, what, what are we doing? He said, we're going to have a beer. He pulled out a cooler. He, he went in back and he pulled out this cooler from inside of his plane, plopped it down there. It had some director's chairs, if I remember it right. And, and we sat around and, and I remember calling home saying, I'm going to be a little bit late. Why? I said, well... King says we're having a beer. If the king yeah. says we're having a beer, we're having a beer. 
And that's <laughs> that's what happened. And he made you feel like you were the most important person on the plane, the most important person that ever interviewed you, the most important person that he could have a beer with. And I learned a lot from that. I I, uh, I try to treat people that way. And I, I will always try to, to emulate that as well. I mean, um, I don't sign gazillions of autographs. I do sign book copies now. And um, back when I was at the Golf Channel and we would go to majors, they would ask some of us, because it's golf's channel, you know, people felt like they knew us and they would have flags and they'd want it signed. Well, Mr. Palmer always signed his signature so you could read it. And so I've always thought about that too. You know, when I'm, when I'm writing something, try as best you can to write something that is, is legible and, uh, and readable for others. He's a great man. God rest his soul. And he gave so much to not just the golf channel or golf, but uh, to sports. He was a true ambassador. He made golf cool. He brought TVs and eyeballs to the game. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have, to have worked I get for, for Mr. Palmer and alongside him in, in some ways as well. So that would have been roughly three or four years into your tenure at the Golf Channel. Is that about right? So we launched in 1995, in January okay. of 95. And, um, you know, the, the, Olympi the Olympics in Atlanta were in 96. So it was uh, shortly thereafter when mm -hmm. the golf course opened um, that we went there for that event. So it would have been, you know, a couple years after after the golf channel launched so does that feel like an incredible moment as somebody who has bounced around at smaller stations obviously that's how yeah. most people get their start to within a year or two be flying on a private jet with arnold palmer to go play yeah. and hang out at his course and cover the Olymp i mean right right well i i um i tell a lot of stories in that book you know and i am incredibly blessed for opportunities that, that have come my way. I do believe you work hard to earn the chance to get opportunities to come your way, but nothing's given, nothing really truly just lands at you um, without working hard to try to, to achieve that. Um, I put in years as a local sportscaster in Columbus, Georgia, Fort Myers, Florida, and Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then I got this opportunity, my agent called and said, there's this golf channel that's beginning. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And so they sent my tape and Lo and behold, it wasn't all that long after that I got a phone call that this gentleman named Mike Whalen, who was the executive producer and hired all the talent, said, hey, they're really interested in you. They'd like to bring you for an interview. And now here I am, this, this sportscaster in Kalamazoo, and uh, they, they flew me first class down to Orlando. Now, they flew me back coach, and uh, I always <laughs> thought that that was, that was kind of funny, but um, they gave me a whopping 24 hours to make a decision, maybe 36, but not a lot of time. And I just felt like it was a great opportunity. And so when you say bouncing around, yeah, you know what? I, I've done that. And I have um, spent a lot of time to prepare for the opportunity at the Golf Channel that I received. And uh, very fortunate, you know, I mentioned Mr. Palmer's story. I, I always remember opening night in, in uh, January of 95 and, and all of us collectively putting something special toward um, the start of a new channel that was really Golf's channel. And I, I do remember being at Tiger Woods press conference um, in Milwaukee when he said, hello, world. I was at that first tournament. I was the one reporter that was there. I was there in 97 when he won the Masters. Um, I was there at Torrey Pines in 2008 when he won on a broken leg. I was the guy in the studio the day that he hit the fire hydrant, the day after Thanksgiving. I was the only anchor in the building that day. That was my shift. We rotated on holidays to uh, determine who was going to be the host. And that was me that day. 
And so I remember that like like it was yesterday. It was it was craziness. Um, I was there hosting the day that he had the mea culpa press conference to say he was sorry for his transgressions. I've seen his comebacks from that and and the most recent car crash. And um, there, there are so many great, great players in the game, but there's so many great stories within the game as well. And I'm just incredibly fortunate to have um, have had an opportunity to be a part of that. And now with SiriusXM and, you know, having been with the LPGA for five years as an executive um, after being on TV for all those years, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. So I do want to ask something and, and feel free to speak on it however you like. Um, but in your book, you talk about how you were dead set on being in front of the camera and mm-hmm. that the way that people were being treated at the time gave you some cause for pause at NBC Golf Channel that kind of pushed you into um, considering this chief communication officer. Um, yeah. Are you are you willing to elaborate on that, or have they made strides in the right direction? I don't want to put anybody's Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell that story. I, look, 2008, 2009 were a very difficult time in the economy. At the same time, Comcast and... and um, uh, the Golf Channel, we're, we're working on a big deal in the merger and, and, you know, moving toward NBC Universal and all those different things. And uh, in my opinion, and I think everybody knows that they were trying to lean, lean out the business. Um, you know, people's contracts were up. Mine was up at the time. And uh, I, I was told, hey, um, you're, you're going to be free to look at, at the end of the year. And I was like, whoa, I've been here X number of years. I'm your main anchor. Um, that wasn't what I was expecting. You know, I signed a two-year contract instead of four, but it, it ended at the wrong time. And there were a bunch of my colleagues that were let go. And it was very painful to watch them be let go. And at that time, I went from a full-time employee to a renegotiated deal where I was an independent contractor. And um, so it was just very different. And I only worked four days a week instead of five. And I said, well, what four days are you going to have me work? What's my role now? And they said, you're, you're our main anchor. I said, so I'm going to work four days a week, um, Thursday through Sunday. And, and, and yet I'm not a full-time employee. It just didn't feel real right to me. And so that one other day a week was mine to do whatever I wanted. And I started a business called HTK Media, which stood for Have the Knowledge. And um, and so it was a consulting business. And I felt like, look, I'd done a lot of different things. I could do some media coaching or, or speaking and get paid for it. And uh, that's what I set off to do. So um, having done that for you know a couple of years, um, I was making a little bit of money at it. And, and when Mike Wan got the job at the LPGA as the commissioner, he came in to be interviewed. And they said, Craig, you're going to interview the commissioner. Well, when I got done with the interview, I handed him my HTK Media business card, not a Golf Channel business card. And I said, if you ever need a consultant, I did play-by-play for a number of years for the LPGA. I've been to most all the tournaments. I feel like I could share some insight and help grow, whether it's media coaching or this or that. He said, I'm, I'm good right now, but let me think about that a little bit. Well, it was, you know, um, a year later, I guess. Uh, I was at the U.S. Open at Congressional in 2011, and I got a phone call. And it was from the commissioner of the LPGA, Mike Juan, who said, you know, you might think I'm nuts, um, but uh, I, have a, I have an opportunity as chief communications officer. And, um, your name keeps popping up in my head. Um, I wonder if you'd be interested in considering that. And I was like, whoa. So the big picture of it for me was um, what I didn't know. He tracked me for a year, Reed, and um, he paid attention to what I was doing. And 
I think I benefited from showing him or others that I could take on an entrepreneurial spirit, if you will, while also being um, a face and a, and a main uh, presenter, uh, host, anchor at the Golf Channel. And so I was able to pivot and, and have kind of some tentacles um, to show people, hey, I'm not just a one trick pony. I'm not just the Golf Ch Channel guy. And so when that job was offered to me ultimately to be chief communications officer, I was like, okay, well, those types of executive roles at the helm of a professional sports league don't fall in the laps of guys who wear makeup and read teleprompters. I mean, that's what I was doing at the time. So um, I felt like if I didn't take the opportunity, I might be missing out on something. If I did take it and I didn't like it, I could always go back to TV. That's what I was trained for. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I've kind of made those types of decisions for a long time. I want to protect myself. I want to grow myself. I want to stretch myself. And I don't want to get too comfortable in what I do. And uh, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, and I think it's a lesson for a lot of different people. If a pandemic hits or um, if the economy goes south, you don't want to be the one that's that's uh, furloughed or shown the door because they can only keep so many. You want to have enough tools in your toolbox to show people that you are worthy of being kept. So tell us about the state of the LPGA when you came in as the chief communication officer. When mm -hmm. we spoke with Kim Anderson, he received the job of uh, of uh conference basketball commissioner and it was a job title that he had never like had never existed before he had never used it before and first day in mm -hmm. the commissioner of the league said i don't know figure it out um was there did they already have a game plan for how to grow the lpga or was that going to be mostly on your shoulders well the commissioner's job is to grow the brand of the lpga um he hires people to take on roles to do that. Mine was communications and we didn't have a big marketing department. We didn't even have a marketing true defined marketing department because we are a nonprofit organization. Um, and the LPG is a big, big, you know, uh, big enterprise. They really are. When I got there in 2011, um, there were only 23 events on the schedule. And once upon a time, there were more than 40. So they were struggling uh, with awareness. They were struggling with respect. They were struggling with sponsors. They were struggling with a lot of different things. And the commissioner um, was was let go and uh, they brought in Mike Juan. And I remember our first lunch and he said, among the things that I want you to do, and he laid them out, boom, 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 boom. Um, I want you to show me what communications is supposed to look like here in 2016. Well, it was 2011. So he's saying, you know, five years later. And um, Look, I, I'd never been an executive uh, at any level, all right? I think I'm a pretty good leader. I think I'm a pretty good communicator. Mike brought me in as an out-of-the-box hire, outside the box. If he wasn't going to give a speech, he knew I could do that. And he knew that I understood media and I could help him. And um, so I, I thought it was a, a pretty gutsy move, but I thought it was, a, I mean, it sounds how it sounds. I thought it was a smart move to come at a guy like me um, who had contacts and understood the game and, um, how to how to take it to the next level. I told this story this week um, in front of a big audience at the Golf Business Conference. When when I got there, I, I knew what I knew. And one thing I did know was that I believed that the LPGA had great talent. The LPGA had some great ambassadors, but they didn't have a lot of confidence. They needed a bigger stage. They needed a higher mountain to shout a message from. 
but one of the issues was they didn't know what their message was and they didn't know how to deliver it. So one of the biggest things that I worked on was figuring out what the message was, what our story was, and then coaching them, including all of our team executives on how to share it, how to present it. And um, we can all come up with ideas. We can all write things down, but can we truly present it? Can we communicate it to other people? And I think that was the big challenge. So uh, at the time, there were 23 events, like I said, uh, prize money was in the $40 million range. Uh, there was a lot of tape delayed golf for the LPGA. Uh, I think more than 80% of it was tape delayed. That was tough. And we had nowhere to go but up. So we, we focused our energy on doing things that would make people take notice as opposed to waiting for people to take notice. And there's a big difference. And that was the whole strategy. And um, so every single thing we did had a purpose. We, we sat around, we, we talked about it. We put Twitter handles on the back of caddy bibs um, instead of just, you know, putting NB Park's name on the back. We put at the NB Park or at the Michelle Wee or at the Pete Creamer or, you know, at Natalie Gold, whatever the Twitter handles were. That's what went on there. We didn't put at LPGA because, as I said earlier, your job is to grow the brands of the athletes first and get them to be more well recognized. Could Lexi Thompson walk around and have people, hey, there's Lexi Thompson. That's the goal. So um, great challenge, great opportunity. Uh, I loved my five years there. I got to travel the world. I got to see the best female athletes in the world play a game that I love. And I got to, I believe, help them a little bit to understand the value or value in their story and the value in building their brand. So you mentioned something uh, just a second ago about effective communication, and that is a, a main uh, point in the book. And it's very interesting to me because at one point you say, you know, not too long, certainly to the point, and then another point you talk about uh giving plenty of detail and being thorough. And so at first I was a little confused when I was reading that. And then I realized, no, 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 no. He's talking about hitting this sweet spot where, um, and to quote you again, great leaders can make you remember what you're supposed to. So it's just enough information, but not a lot, not enough to get uh, drowned out. Right? Yep. No, that's fair. That's fair. So communication is the link between ideas and action. We want people to take steps. We want people to do something. You're going to have a conversation with somebody. You're, you're going to chit chat. But ultimately, if you're having a meeting, you want to get something out of it. And I think it's important to always start from the end first and work your way backwards. Start from when they're gone. What will they say? What will they do? What will they tell others about the conversation they had with you? So a lot of people, when they're delivering a message, it doesn't have a sticky factor. Do you wear a watch? I do. Okay. We wear a watch and we look at it multiple times a day, multiple times a week, hundreds of times a month. But if I said, don't look at your watch, I want you to draw it for me. Now, do you think you could get the color exactly right? Could you remember exactly whether it was Roman numerals or the other numbers? Could you remember whether it had the date on there? How did it look? Did it say the brand at the top of the watch or at the bottom of the face? Um, there's a lot of different intricacies of that. Um, same thing goes with a refrigerator. You know, we open it how many times a day? Back in the day, you know, families put pictures of, of kids on there or important notes or whatever it might be. And we, we open it that many times. We, do we truly remember 
exactly what everything is. I said, what's on your refrigerator? Could you tell me? My point is, is that things have to be sticky. They have to be memorable. They have to be something that is outside of, um, you know, just casual memory and into, yeah, I absolutely remember that. So when I, I say that, you know, we want to be brief, but we also want to have detail. You know, a lot of people write long emails. Well, they start typing out an email first and they forget the most important thing is, can you get me to open it? I mean, I might have 40, 50, 100 emails a day. What's the subject line? That's where we need to start. And then if you write more than three paragraphs, you need to start a blog. You need to write a book because I don't have time for that. And so that's important. We want to be brief. We want to make sure that we actually say something. There are a lot of people that talk. Very few actually have something to say or that's memorable. And then the other part of it with regard to detail is, is that if I asked you to stand up and tell me who you are and why I should care, I need you to not say, I'm a people person. Um, I give 110%. To me, that's ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. That's generic. I need you to give me Advil. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to promote Advil here, but what I'm saying is Advil is a brand. It's a recognizable name on a shelf. And you have the same thing, but you have to tell me that. You have to share that with me. So it's important to give details in stories. We're, 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 we crave stories. That's how we remember people. That's how we remember events, all those different things. So very important to, to try to do that. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Actually, I'm so glad that you brought up um, when you bring people up and say, tell me who you are and why should I care? All right. So... <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to pitch you right now as if you called me up to st on stage and just be okay. as critical as possible, right? Okay. All right. So you ask me who am I and why Reed, should who are you? Um you've got an audience out there. Who are you? And and why should we care about you? Right. What's your answer? No, I so that's that's where I I had this conversation the other day with a couple of different people of, of almost feeling lost and as what do I bring to the table, right? Um, is it I figure things out? Is it I I can't say I'm a people pleaser because that's what you just said, it's ibuprofen, I can't say that. Um, is it my humor? Is it my um, being able to bring people together on, on different issues or, or in business I, I don't know I, I'm everything that I thought of after I read that in your book just to me sounded incredibly generic and so not only is this me asking you to critique me but like help me guide me through how to define oneself well I think we need to start with coming up with one word that that you would attach to yourself now if somebody says hey Craig um, I need you to tell us who you are and why we should care. I said, okay, my name's Craig Can. I'm an elevator. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, an elevator? Like that goes up and down? No. I work every day to elevate people to become better. I elevate brands to become bigger. And I elevate, if you bring me in to speak, I elevate events to become grander. I don't want to just talk. I don't want to just present. I don't want to just do a keynote. 
I want to deliver an experience. I don't want it to be ordinary. I want it to be extraordinary. I think of three words that I, I talk about as well um, that I think are important, which is the three C's to me. Number one is commitment. How much effort do you put in? How committed are you to being the best you can possibly be? Number two is connection. How connected are we to those around us? Can we create more um, you know, uh, notoriety, more awareness by, by building a connection um, of our brand or, or what we stand for or our products and all of that? We need to connect with people. That's very important. And lastly, community. Now, if we're committed and we connect with people and we put a focus on relationships, shaking hands, smiling, saying something that's memorable, we will build a bigger following. We'll create a bigger community that understands what we bring to the table. So again, elevator is the word for me. You can come up with your own, but I think it's important to try to find something that, that creates a conversation, creates a dialogue. And the other part of it is we can't just deliver the what. We have to deliver the wow. Because in society today, there's constant conversation, constant dialogue. Um, there's so much noise out there. And we have to be able to cut through that. That's the title of the book. Can you get our attention? The average attention span of a human being is eight seconds. It's not a lot of time. It's not. A goldfish is nine, apparently, if you Google that. Um, so that, that's very limited amount of time. You started this podcast. You had eight seconds to get me in, get your audience in. Um, I'm sitting here on the other end uh, as an audience member, not, not me, Craig, but if I'm listening to this, what our audience is constantly thinking is, so what? Who cares? What's in this for me? And you've got to do that. you got to be committed to connecting with them and building a bigger community. That's what you should be focused on with your podcast and whatever it is you're doing. Presenting value to anybody you interact with or your audience or anything is is probably so in in the job that i do now as a uh, marketing guy as a um, basically a fixer um, we have a built-in audience and so I want to hear your opinion on having a built-in audience because our building, our project that we just did, is a 50,000-square-foot building. It's Lamy's in downtown Sedalia. Um, we have a bar and restaurant, a record book and record store, uh, offices, and luxury apartments. It's set okay. in a historic downtown, in a historic building. So now you've got built-in audiences of food, alcohol, records books all coupled together with uh historic architecture how if you are just a normal i mean i'm a i'm a six foot three white guy from the midwest there's a there's 10 15 20 million of me if not more how do yeah. you find your niche like we do with this project number one um I, I talked about ordinary and extraordinary. Um, if we want to be relevant, we have to focus our energy on doing things that are relevant. And we can't focus our energy on things that don't define us or help us move forward or, or create something uh, different for us. Our job, your job, is to take whatever is in front of you and give people back something that's greater than they expected when they gave you the opportunity in the first place. Notice I said opportunity, not obligation. 
So I think that that's really important. Um, we all have building blocks within our career. You might be young, but you also have had experiences. Have you ever written them down? Have you looked at, I was working in this job. This is who influenced me. This is who I actually influenced. This was my greatest success. This was my, my failure. This is what I learned from it. If we do that for every opportunity that we get along the way, it really gives us a sense of what our brand is and what defines us. I think that's really important. So um, how do we define our, ourselves? How do we do something different? Look, we're all trying to be the green shoe. Now, if you've seen me speak in person, if you look over my shoulder right now, you see a green shoe on a shelf. Um, I have a slide that I put in front of a lot of people um, at every talk I give. There's, there's five pairs of white shoes and there's one pair of green shoes. And our job is to be the green shoe, the one that stands out, the one that gets recognized, the one that gets noticed, the one that brings value beyond what is ordinary. And uh, so in my workshops, um, they don't know that they're going to get it, but somebody wins a green shoe every time. And it's, uh, I sign it and it's got the logo on it. And it's a reminder that they, they did something that day that stood out. They were the one that, that was recognized by their peers as the speaker, the all-star speaker of the day or presenter. And they built their brand over eight hours during my workshop. That's, that's, it's a thing that they'll never forget. It's a, it's a, you know, kind of piece of eye candy, if you will. It's a little bit of a teaser to say, Hey, look, do something that's different. So I'll kind of leave you with this on that. Uh, tell you a real quick story. When I was at the LPGA and we interviewed people, um, people would go around the building and then they would, you know, come into my office or whatever, whether they were a communications person or whether they were um, an executive, potential executive. And I had a little whiteboard, you know, you know what a whiteboard is and a big one on my wall and I had a smaller one and I called it my three things board. Okay. So Reed, let's say you were interviewing with me and I'd say, Reed, here's my three things board, left-hand column. I want you to write down three things that during the interview process, be it three weeks, three months, you learn about our organization. What stood out? Second column in your research about our organization, Three things you think we could do better or be better at. Challenges we might face in your mind and what you could add to help us. Three things. Right-hand column, really important. Three things that separate you from anybody else that we might be interviewing for the same job. I give them the whiteboard. I have them sit at a table. They have to write their answers down. When they're done, they hand it to me. And I say, that's not how this works. I need you to take that whiteboard back up 10 feet and now I want you to present it to me. You should see the look on people's face when I ask them to do that, okay? It's very uncomfortable for some people. Now, I didn't always hire the best public speaker or the best presenter, but I hired the person that was the most comfortable with sharing their ideas. You could write down a lot of things. Clearly, you've done some research for this interview. Great job by you, all right? That's impressive. That's what I will remember. That will be one of the takeaways that I have from spending time with Reed Swearingen. All right. That's a brand build for you. I know that you're going to put in the effort and put in the work. All right. So if somebody asked you how you stand out from any other candidate that I might be interviewing, you're going to say, nobody's going to out prepare me. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. I'll second guess something else, but preparedness is not something that I am going to second guess. All right. So we want to make sure that, that we hire people that are not employees. We want to hire ambassadors. We want to hire people that can communicate. We want to hire people um, and surround ourselves with people who can deliver something that actually we remember. As you said earlier, I tell people, executives, when I coach them in my little boot camps, you need to make me remember what I'm supposed to remember. 
What's your story? Who are you? Why should I care? I'm going to walk out of here today. When we're done, somebody's going to say, what'd you do this afternoon? Well, I was on this podcast. Oh, what was he like? What was the podcast like? I'm going to say something. The person that controls the narrative is you. What are you going to make me say? How are you going to make me feel? That's the most important thing. I'll give you 50 bucks to tell him it was good. I'm a good podcaster. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, so that that is one thing that I think a lot of people, especially this day and age when social media is so big and such a large part of our lives, I mean, I, I try to do everything I can to to monitor my screen, uh, my screen time. Um, but you see Instagram accounts, Twitter and everything of, of what looks like people, what people look like when they're succeeding and they're just taking out these little bits of their life. Is that what you're trying to say is like, make sure you select those. I'm not big on social media, really. I mean, I do for the business, but take out those things that you would share with people and that you would promote about yourself on there. And that's what you want to give people um, when you meet them, when you talk to them. Yes. 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 Um, I think um, if I was telling this to you when we're done um, or anybody else that's listening, start spending time journaling about yourself. If you don't toot your own horn, there's no noise. It mm -hmm. is not my job to be your chief communications officer, nor mm -hmm. your chief marketing officer. It is mm -hmm. your job. It is your job to get comfortable with the value that you bring. It is your job to figure out who you are and why I should care. You're going to be asked that many times. Um, I was told once, not my line, you know what, um, if you want to figure out what your value is in a job, every year when you go in for your review, ask them why you got hired, him or her. Why did you hire me? You will always come back to, hmm, now I know why. Now I know what my value was. Now I know what, st now I know what stood out. That sort of stuff's important. So you need to write down things that you believe define you and separate you from other people. Very important. I love a lot that. of people don't spend time on themselves. They don't. You need to. I love that toot your own horn. I, I, I think that's a great one because you're not going out and, and actually telling people. Um, you're not shoving it in their face when you're mm -hmm. journaling. But it is, a, it is a process that I've been told to do, well, probably like 10 times in the past two months. Like, just, just do it, and it'll help build. The, it's those building blocks for knowing your value. Mm -hmm. Right. So correct. Wow. That uh, guy, if you can get anything out of this podcast, I hope any, that's what you guys get out of it. I mean, this has been a great, these are great stories and everything, but there is something about um, being more comfortable uh, in one's skin and, and being able to show that value to anybody um, just in your daily life, not in a cocky or um, narcissistic way, but just walking around with that confidence. Hmm. We have to. So um, I don't. I don't know where we are on time for you, but but I'll, I'll leave people with this message. You've got an audience. This is your opportunity. Okay, where you are sitting right now is prime real estate. Not everybody has set up themselves as a podcaster. Not everybody has created that audience. Um, you can't preach to people unless you can get them into the church first. You got to get me to buy in before I'll listen to your sermon. 
okay? You mm-hmm. got to get me in there. And the great preachers have done the work with great messages to get people to go say, you know what, you, you need to come to the 11 o'clock service. You need to come to the 830 service, whatever it is. You need to come listen to this man, this woman. That's what you need to do. And I want your audience to understand the value in understanding who they are and what they bring. Um, this is not, uh, not a lot of people always get tapped on the shoulder to speak or present or share stories or deliver a presentation. I work with people to get them to say something different than I have to do a presentation next week. No, I want people to say, I get to do one. Um, I want people to be excited about the opportunity to stand in front of an audience. Standing up is your opportunity. Standing out when you stand up becomes your brand. That's what people will talk about. And the job is to get people's attention, just as the book suggests, keep people's attention and get them to do something with a message that adds value and something that is memorable, repeatable, shareable, and creates emotion from the audience. That's what you're trying to get. An audience is not a given. Once you get one, what are you going to do with it? That's the challenge. Wow. I like, I mean, I haven't been able to come to one of your keynotes or one, one, uh, any of your speeches or anything that I'm getting a one-on-one here. And I mean, I feel like I gotta give you a little something. I usually have little trinkets for everybody who comes by, um, like a giant knife or like a crossbow, or like random things. Um, so we're going to ship you something. I can't ship you any of those, I don't think. But um, I can't thank you enough, uh, Craig, for coming on the podcast. Um, there's a lot in this book, if you guys haven't heard of it. Can you get our attention? Stand out, the story, the company, the brand, you. Um, obviously, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on uh, Craig's website. Canadvisory.com. There can, you go. Canadvisory.com. We will have both links in the description. Canadvisory.com. Craig signs all of them, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he does. Yep. So um, I, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you being on. Uh, I want to do a follow-up. Um, if you have time, sometime maybe in six or eight months, something like that. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to tell you who I am and why you should care. I love it. I love it. And at that point, um, it'll be the fall and it'll be football season and mm-hmm. M-I-Z. Um, we'll, uh, we'll see each other at a game. So I'm That's all in. Perfect. Happy to help you. Well, Thanks for having me. You know, I, um, I think, uh, the chance to share and uh, and be a part of something for somebody else is is a powerful opportunity as well to be on the receiving end of it and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep getting the reps. Keep talking to people. Um, treat each interview like a research project. What can you what can you absorb? What can you use? And uh, you'll be going you'll be going places. Thank you. And I think that's I think that's a resounding you don't suck. Um. <laughs> No, you definitely don't suck. <laughs> great job. Uh, great job on this podcast and uh, very impressed by the research and your questions. Uh, so, yes, I'm giving you high marks. Thank you very much. Well, everybody stay tuned uh, for the uh, next episode of the Partner's Desk, but make sure you listen to this one all the way through. Um, if you have, I can't thank you enough, and uh, we'll talk to you in the next one.